Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The time in Mariupol, southeastern Ukraine, is 8.10 a.m. And somehow, somehow, Mariupol still stands in that massive steel plant called Azovstal, the Ukrainian regiment that has been holed up there for months, taking absolutely endless pounding of artillery, missiles, assaults, and stormings constantly by Russian troops. Somehow, Azovstal still stands... And of course, so does Kiev. Day 71 of the Russian war in Ukraine. And this is episode 6 of Reconsider's special series on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've always been at war with Eurasia. The subtitle of today's episode is what happens when you really start believing your own bullshit? What happens when you've turned your country into a yes-man bubble where everyone only tells you what you want to hear? Well, sticking your hand in a trash dispenser in your sink, turning it on, and pretending everything's fine is a great analogy for what happens. Russia is getting absolutely ground to pieces in Ukraine. They are strategically putting themselves in a worse and worse long-term position, and they are not going to be able to recover from this for decades. And yet they decide to keep going, despite the fact that they're not making progress. It's astounding. And we'll talk a little bit about, one, how that can happen, and two, how you can get this sort of Orwellian hey, we've always been at war with Eurasia, change of story, and have your population kind of be okay with it. We won't have any definitive answers on this stuff, but we will get to explore it. But first, as all of you want from me, a general war update. So the last time I checked in with y'all was April 7th. So it was four weeks ago. I was talking about all wild on the Eastern Front. So we were looking at Russia regrouping to assault the Donbass. One thing I said was a bad idea was just kind of throwing troops at the situation as they become available, kind of like the bad guys do in video games or James Bond movies or John Wick movies. 
Um, sending just enough at a time for the good guys to dispatch them in pretty cool epic fights. That is exactly what the Russians have done. Now, of course, they've continued to cause a lot of damage and murder a ton of people, and we don't know quite what's happening to the Ukrainian military, but what we can say with confidence is that the Ukrainian military is not being dislodged. Um, the Russians were hoping to grind it down and get a few opportunities for breakthrough somewhere, anywhere. They took a town called Izium, and it looked pretty dodgy for a bit. Well, they're now holed up in Izium because the Ukrainians keep counterattacking. The Ukrainians don't seem willing to budge. The Russians are not getting a breakthrough, so they're back into a war of attrition, which is bad for the Russians, even though they have a much bigger military in some ways, and they have a lot more money, except not anymore, and they have a lot more hardware, which is becoming less and less true. So war of attrition is not working out well for the Russians. So in this last month, they've made a bit of progress in a few places, namely that area around Izium, which if they can really break out from there, would allow them to encircle those troops in that kind of corridor along the Donbass, you know, those Ukrainian troops in the corridor along the Donbass and, and potentially destroy them. But right now, Azim is just a salient, which means they're a little bit exposed. And the Ukrainians are actually coming from the east because they've been pushing the Russians further east, especially recently, out of Kharkiv. And if they can continue to cruise east, they might be able to cut off Izium. This is how maneuver warfare works. One thing we've been learning is that the Ukrainians are really good at maneuver warfare, which we kind of already knew at a small scale from the first phase of the war when Russia was going after Kiev. But it turns out they're really good at a big scale as well. What this means is the Russians will advance. They'll get picked off, picked off. There'll be some resistance. There'll be this rolling retreat by the Ukrainians. Uh, the Russians will declare victory and then boom, counterattack. We'll dislodge them again. And the Russians will take a lot of casualties in the meantime and, and be demoralized. This is maneuver defense, and the Ukrainians are really good at it, as it turns out. They're not just digging in and letting themselves be displaced and then opening a gap for breakthrough the way that, like, would happen in World War II on these open plains areas and, and was famously the Blitzkrieg and all that stuff. You're not getting those breakthroughs, and it's really important. The Russians do have more troops to bring to bear. They are regrouping BTGs, battalion tactical groups, from Mariupol. Ten of them, it seems. But they've also been sending so many of those BTGs into a meat grinder that 25% of their entire invasion force seems to be totally combat ineffective. So, of the original thing, they're down to only 75% combat effectiveness. That's not fresh. That's combat effective. And so the, even those are granted out. So significantly more than 25% of their forces have damaged and, and shortened and made smaller, but 25% of the BTGs that they send in are completely combat ineffective. Ukraine has made some marginal advances towards Kherson. They're really trying to take Kherson and kind of secure the south because it's very clear now that the Russians have every now open and obvious intention of moving west from their holdings in the south in Kherson, taking Odessa and connecting to Moldova and turning Ukraine into a sort of landlocked rump state of its former self and just trying to own the Black Sea. So Ukraine uh, is making those advances towards Kherson, but the Russians aren't giving up easily there. It's, it's long been considered that the southern axis is the most disciplined and the, the best supplied. However, the Russians have tried to counterattack against those Ukrainian advances and have failed. So the Ukrainians are making progress. 
And again, somehow Maria Pol's troops in the Azovstal steel plant are still there. It's going to be for probably literally centuries to come the most incredible story of holding out against impossible odds in a in a truly fatal, hopeless situation and just holding out and holding out against, again, endless shelling, endless rocket attacks, endless, like, up-close-and-personal artillery blasting everything around you, no electricity, no running water, no food, no resupply, except for a daring nighttime delivery with helicopters where a bunch of ammunition was dropped in, which is just astounding. But these guys have just been totally on their own. In this, Now, the steel plant is very big. It's like a small town, but they've been totally on their own, completely isolated for well over a month, like I think closer to seven, seven weeks. And the Russians still don't have it. So this is... Uh, this makes the mentioning the Alamo kind of a joke. There's, there's absolutely nothing like it that I can think of outside of parts of World War II. Interestingly, the Russians holding out in places like Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. So yeah, it really seems like the vast majority of Russian attempts to advance are getting repelled or counterattacked. It's going to grind them down. It's going to make them combat ineffective. It's going to crush morale. You know, Russia's already scooped up all of the really effective troops. We're talking about maybe in May 9th, they're going to start mass conscription, but like, good golly, these troops that they're mass conscripting are not trained, and they're probably going to just kind of continue this John Wick style, send them to the front to be blown up kind of thing. The thing that is kind of crazy about what the Russians are doing is they know they're locked in a battle with all of NATO, you know, NATO troops aren't the ones pulling the triggers, but NATO is training the Ukrainians. NATO is providing reconnaissance and incredible intelligence to the Ukrainians. I mean, the United States even admitted recently that our intelligence helped the Ukrainians assassinate or, or kill Russian generals, right? And, and we're just open about this. We knew it was true, but the U.S. is willing to admit it out loud. And so that intelligence is going to stay. The money's going to keep flowing. The arms are going to keep flowing. The training's going to keep happening by the West. So Russia is fighting all of NATO at once, and it's been losing. And what might happen in five days is that it may just decide to double down somehow, which is absolutely bananas because NATO has so much more money, so much more technology, so much more hardware than Russia. And it's willing to spend it. I think Russia is depending on the idea that NATO is going to not be willing to put most of its hardware on the table in Ukraine. But look, if it's not to defend against the Russians, what's it for? Like, that's the point. That's why all these countries have militaries. It's because of the Russians. That's what NATO is about. And so if Russia doesn't think that NATO is going to be willing to keep shipping expensive equipment to Ukraine to be blown up in the service of beating the Russians, they got another thing coming. That's the entire point of NATO. And of course, the strategic failure for the Russians is just so, so great. And so part of what we want to talk about is, good golly, Miss Molly, how can something this stupid and something this bad for Russia continue? Oh yeah, last thing I want to mention militarily is that Ukraine is now getting tons of heavy weapons. Earlier it was getting, like, ammunition and some switchblade drones and these light 
weapons, anti-armor weapons, but light weapons, the famous in-laws and javelins, and those are really cool, but in a big open field battle where the entire, you're facing down the entire army, and it is a very flat area that they're fighting in now, it's not the muddy, it's not the muddy, bogged down forests around Kiev. This is big and flat and open. Now it has towns. It's heavily populated, so you can't just kind of like roll through. But the Russians can drive big masses of tanks, and they're willing to do it because they're not trying to rush anymore. So you can't just get them with in-laws and javelins. You have to have real weapons. So the Ukrainians are getting, guess what, real heavy weapons. They're getting advanced tanks. They're getting big, advanced howitzers from the United States. People have made hay about these 90 howitzers. And you think, 90 howitzers? Like, 9-0? Is that really the number we're talking about? I went to the Wikipedia page on the, the list of equipment of the armed forces of Ukraine. And what's interesting, it's actually really, really well updated. The, sorry, it's not 90. It's 100. The M777s that the United States sent. You know, but, but those M777s, you know, they're 155 millimeter. Well, you know, they... I'm looking at like a counts of 185, 287, 152 millimeter howitzers. And this was smaller stuff, 500 plus, 450 plus, 152, another 224. We're talking about thousands of pieces of artillery that can on their own do a lot of damage. So why do we care about those hundred? Well, it turns out the super accurate and easy to dial in to some radar systems that the Germans are sending and the Americans are sending so they can be very precise counter battery fires. So what they can do is they can start picking off Russian artillery and potentially stack the deck in their favor because so much of what the Ukrainians have is old. It's old Soviet crap and the difference matters. So anyway, so they're getting... Uh, our big advanced howitzers from the United States. They're getting those radar systems. They're getting rocket artillery. They're getting drones. They're getting the good stuff in order to be able to not just defend, but counterattack and take territory back. So what the heck is going on in Russia? Because this has gotten to the point that it is beyond, well, beyond reason. The Russians, again, are going to chew themselves into pieces and it, it doesn't seem reasonable that they could really win you know in any way that you can imagine i mean again the strategic failure is so deep already getting finland and sweden to join nato getting georgia to join the eu getting moldova to join the eu all that stuff absolute disaster but even tactically if you think about it the ukrainians are never going to give up i mean this is like the this is like afghanistan this is like vietnam like it's, they're not just going to go well okay you got us now, part of the problem is, of course, in 2014, the Ukrainians had so little support, they were kind of like, okay, well, you got us, again, both with the original Donbass invasion and the Crimean invasion. But at this point, like, you've kicked the hornet's nest of the entire West. Ukraine's not going to stop. Russia's going to run out of money before the West does. I mean, Russia's going to run out of manpower who's able to fight in this war before Ukraine does. Even though Russia's a bigger country, I mean, Ukraine's still 42 million people. That's a lot of people. And they're pissed off in a way that the Russians are not. And so how could this be happening? Well, one of the things, I, I was getting into this and I read an article where U.S. intel suggests that Putin has believed, including well into late April, that he's winning. He believes he's winning, which is just bananas. I don't know how. Now, what's interesting is what's, what's really clear is that Putin has surrounded himself 
with a bunch of yes men and people who are like not willing to give him the wrong answer. And there's this awesome article by Brian Kloss. He's a global politics professor at the University College. He writes for all sorts of uh, papers, but he has the Power Corrupts podcast, which I actually really liked, and he's the author of Corruptible. So he's kind of an expert in how power corrupts, but it's also the case that we have to watch out for his bias. But he's looked at a whole bunch of dictators in the past. Muammar Gaddafi is one of the people that he looks at. Hitler, right, is someone who was doing okay at first and then way overplayed his hand and ground Germany into into the dirt. He looks at guys like this and he says, Putin, is, Putin has the same problem. And so part of the problem is that he what he describes is that Putin in order to consolidate his grip on power and bring stability to a system that was highly unstable, he had to get rid of people who really questioned him, right? who questioned whether he should be in power. And so the way to stay safe in this system was to tell the guy what he wants to hear. The dictator creates loyalty tests to solve the problem of, you know, he could be surrounded by people who want to off him and put themselves and their friends in charge. So he has these loyalty tests to separate people who he can trust from those he can't. And so the the way that he does that, the way that these loyalty tests work is people have to put themselves in compromised positions. They have to lie on behalf of the regime. They have to essentially be blackmailable. They have to put on a show. And anyone who hesitates is considered suspect. What that means is that you have all these people around Putin who are willing to parrot whatever he wants to hear. The problem is, and this is what this professor writes about, the problem is that this starts going back to the leader's head. They start believing their own BS. And so Putin seems to believe his own illusions of grandeur. He seems, for example, to believe that he is the guy to restore Russia to greatness, right? And again, that means that means he's like spent time during the pandemic, isolated alone, poring over old maps of the lost Russian imperium. And, and everyone's around him has told him that he's such a brilliant strategist that he's, of course, going to he's going to win at whatever he wants to do. And telling him what he doesn't want to hear can get you literally killed, right? Putin has not been afraid to kill people who oppose him. And telling him he has a bad idea, like, you want to be able to, if you're a leader, you want to be able to have people with you who are able to tell you the truth, even if it's hard. But it gets harder and harder for a dictator and the people closest to him to tell the difference between someone who supports you and is going to tell you you're wrong versus someone who tells you you're wrong and therefore you have to be worried about them forming, you know, stoking discontent. And so you can't really rely on anyone to tell you what's really going on. And if you live in a fake world long enough, it can begin to feel real. And so Putin has become unhinged. Similarly, it seems to be why Trump is so unhinged and absolutely just like convinced that the rules don't apply to him and the law doesn't apply to him and reality doesn't apply to him because he's done, of course, a great job surrounding himself with yes men in his life. Kim Jong-un, of course, is the same way. So what happens then 
is in lacking getting this good intelligence from people who are willing to tell you what you don't want to hear, you start to not hear the bad news that you really, really need. So, for example, Putin clearly didn't hear that the Russian military was suffering being gutted by corruption. Right. And it clearly had been billions and billions of dollars worth of equipment and, and money were grafted off the top and didn't go to the Russian military. When, of course, since it was since the professionalization of the Russian military was Putin's idea, the people around him, of course, told him, oh, everything's going great. Definitely great. And if something was going badly, they'd blame someone else. That person would be fired. And so you have this game of people trying to politic about each other, but no one providing reliable information. So Clearly, Putin uh, misunderstood the strength of the Russian military. He was probably told what he wanted to hear about Ukraine, that they'd be welcomed as liberators, right? And we've heard something like that before, and we'll actually talk about that. For those who know the term welcomed as liberators, right, who live here in the United States, you kind of cringe a little bit, don't you? But he'd been told that they'd be welcomed as liberators, and now he seems to be being told that Russia's winning, that they're just on the edge of a breakthrough, that everything's fine. And so he's going to keep doubling down and keep doubling down. The other problem, of course, is that the cult of personality he's built doesn't allow him either in his own head or in the public image that he's shaped of himself in you know, the public eye and with, with leaders to be weak or to have lost because his iron grip on power relies on people being afraid of him. People are afraid of him when he is infallible and powerful, right? The West had been afraid of him for a long time. He seemed like a master chess player. He seemed to always be outmaneuvering the West. But again, it seems just like a little bit like Trump, where he's just willing to gamble and willing to play brinksmanship games and willing to take risks and kind of throw under people under the bus in a way that the West wasn't willing to do or that other politicians in the U.S. weren't willing to do. And the brazenness was something that the international system wasn't prepared for and that the U.S. democracy wasn't prepared for. But as we can see here, that level of gambling and brazenness combined with this thing called the dictator trap where you start to believe your own bullshit and you stop hearing the truth that you need to hear, all that stuff combines into a terrible recipe to make the big fatal mistake. And that is what Putin has made, the big fatal mistake, because this is going to end very, very badly for Russia. However, what we don't see is a big uprising against Putin in Russia, right? Even though this is terrible for Russia, we don't see a bunch of people doing anything about it. Now, some of it is that the Russians live in a totalitarian state. And so, of course, they're afraid. There's only so much you can do when you live in a totalitarian state because you just otherwise a few people started protesting in St. Petersburg and whoop, they're all in jail. And who knows what's happening to them, right? But when they come out, they're like, we got tortured. Everyone's like, who cares? So that's definitely part of the problem is that People who disagree can't do much about it, and people can't say openly that they do disagree because it is dangerous. Putin's Russia is a lot like the old Soviet Union. It has secret police. I mean, it's a bad place to be. Now, I say nobody's doing anything about it. There, do, there are clearly sabotages going on in Russia. Sabotages of ammo depots, sabotages of infrastructure, sabotages of oil depots, stuff that powers the war. Is it Russian citizens doing that? Is it Russian citizens who are against the war that are doing that? Is it is it Ukrainian infiltrators? Don't know. But it turns out the vast majority of Russians at least say that they are pro the war. About 80% say they're pro war. 6% say they have no opinion, and 14% say they're against. 
So how much of that is true? It's unclear. The independent pollers I read say that there's definitely a different atmosphere in Russia now than there was in 2014. Like when you have this fait accompli, this coup de grace, where when the news talks about it, you've already won. You know, it's, it's, hey, we already won. We already took back Crimea. Hooray. Right? Like we... We successfully stole someone else's territory as opposed to we're in the middle of a war and it's big and it's bad and it's long. Um, and there's a lot of fighting going on, so people might be dying. And by the way, there are all these sanctions, blah, 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 right? That stuff. So people are going to be less excited about it. But it doesn't seem like there's going to be an uprising. There isn't going to be a revolution unless this drags on for a really, really long time. We do know that, for example the Russians first losing the Russo-Japanese War and then losing, getting their butts kicked in World War I was a big part of the Russian Revolution. But that was, of course, elites in Russia led that. The Any popular part of the revolution started, started a little bit later. And so it's never going to be like a spontaneous groundswell thing. It would be led by elites. And in this case, those elites would probably commit a coup. Are they going to do it? Who knows? Nobody can penetrate that circle, really. And if they are thinking about it, they're keeping it quiet. But it does seem to be the case that the Russians are generally supportive of this war, as opposed to sitting here like the rest of us going, this is absolutely evil and barbaric and horrifying and crazy and sadistic, right? We see the stuff that's happening in Bukha and and. Uh, many other places. There are many bukas now. We hear about what's happening and just the number of different geographies and different Russian units that are committing these horrible, sadistic, torturous acts of of unfathomable inhumanity makes you start to think there's something endemic going on in the Russian culture. There's something endemic going on in the Russian people where barbarity is largely okay in their minds. Like they have less of a sense of humanism and empathy than their counterparts on uh, the western side of the continent. So there's something going on in Russia. And it's also the case that the best analysis I could read of this was uh, Washington Post actually talked about, sorry, it was a, a different pollster that asked it, but they asked this great question, which is why do other countries condemn Russia's military operation against Ukraine, you know, special military operation? 36% said that the, the criticisms are a subordination to the United States and NATO. So they see NATO as, you know, the U.S. and NATO as just as much of a kind of like intimidating power that tries to control its periphery and the people of its periphery just as much as Russia, right? They think of the U.S. like Russia. And so, of course, these countries say what, the U.S. wants them to say because the U.S. dominates them and they suborn to the United States. Really interesting mindset there, right? It's that many Russians believe the rest of the world around them is as Orwellian and horrible as their own. 27% say the world is always against Russia. So poor us, victim mentality, big part of Russian propaganda and the media for a very long time. Right, is this is this Russian victimhood mentality. And twenty nine percent say they are disinformed by Western news media. And that's almost everybody. Right. So the Western news media is corrupted somehow and they don't tell the truth. We get the truth here in Russia from our trusty state news media. Which it sounds crazy, like state news media, you trust them. The BBC is state news media, and they're one of the more trustworthy sources out there. So many Russians may think of their state news media as delightfully trustworthy. 
But it's also the case that the Kremlin, like the Russian government, has been laying the groundwork for this for a long time, right? Their people are, frankly, pretty brainwashed. The Russian government is very good at repeating the same message over and over and over with fake anecdotal evidence and, and just like developing stories around it. So I've looked into like some analyses of what the Russian media does is and they find something that looks kind of suspicious and they spin this whole story around it. They find like a tweet by a guy in the in a certain regiment and they say this whole regiment is neo-Nazi. They literally use like doctored photos of Zelensky like standing in front of swastikas, smiling in front of swastikas and saying, look, he's super neo-Nazi. And they've been blasting this propaganda about how Ukraine's evil, about how the Ukrainian government is evil, the West evil. You know, Ukraine is since 2014, the West since forever. Russia is a victim for as long as they can. And, and of course, it's one of those things where, like, the mind has all these biases. We've talked about these in other episodes. But the mind has this bias that, like, once you see something enough times, like, you start to kind of believe it, right? We talked about this in the casual radicalization of a citizen thing. Like, if you get on a subreddit, like a Reddit uh, site kind of thing, and it's dedicated to bashing the right wing or the left wing or bashing a certain kind of people, like, your brain's going to start to go, like, God, they are awful. And so... People, when they're just bombarded with that all the time, they start to develop that hate. And if you think that only happens in a state with state-controlled media, look at your own country with free media and see how people get manipulated. See how people develop this, this hate and these twisted ideas of even their own citizens. And so how's this story evolved? Well, again, for eight years, it's been Zelensky and the Ukrainian government are neo-Nazis. They're propped up by the United States and the West. It's a puppet regime. And so, you know, as much as the Russians have access to social media, they're mostly being blasted all the time with the Russian official message. The part of this gets really Orwellian and really weird is that the Russians are also good at changing the message whenever the old one's not useful, right? So the original idea of the special military operation was that Ukraine's committing genocide in the Donbass and it has to be stopped. Ukraine is a neo-Nazi regime. Then it was Ukraine's a neo-Nazi regime that needs to be demilitarized and replaced, again, propped up by the West. And then after that, when Russia was getting its butt kicked in the first month, they came out and said, we generally accomplished our initial objective, which, you know, steer quotes around that because this initial objective was never made clear before, to reduce Ukraine's military strength. So that was our initial objective, to reduce Ukraine's military strength. And then we're going to get on to our real objective, the next thing, which is uh, we need to go take territory in the south and needs to have a land bridge to Crimea and Transnistria because Ukraine wants to invade Moldova. That was it the whole time. We've always been at war with Eurasia. And then it's just evolved into Ukraine is now a battlefield of Russia versus the West, which it is... Of course, but that's because Russia invaded in the first place. And so this is super Orwellian, isn't it? And this is the stuff that I think we have to be careful looking for in our own lives where our justifications for things change. And I'm going to do another episode on this of our own... Like, I, I kind of want to do, like, the West or America or liberal democracies. We've always been at war with Eurasia or freedom of slavery, war is peace. Because we do this as well. The Russians just do it in a more blatant, obvious way. And so I do want to bring up one example from our past of where it kind of happened. Um, 
And 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 kind of, and where it didn't right because one thing we got to contrast is that while you can't trust Putin's popularity, you can see trends and it goes up and down. So right now it's the highest it's been since Crimea was annexed. It's at eighty seven percent, whatever that means. But Putin is more popular than he's been in eight years and just about ever in this absolute clusterfuck disaster for the country that he's gotten them into for no good reason. So so let's see where. The Iraq war is similar and different, right? So similar. One, the rationale for war changed, right? So initially we were in there for weapons of mass destruction. Turned out they weren't there. Whether that was a terrible mistake, whether it was just a confirmation bias, whether it was an evil sinister plot to invade Iraq, I think the academics say it's the first and the second. It's confirmation bias and and really bad decision making this is my little moment to say a lot of these people are like no war for oil and and none of them did any research on how much oil the united states was getting before and after the iraq invasion because had they known that the amount of oil that the united states was getting from iraq plummeted after the invasion and and has always been down since and that that oil is sold on the open market the way it always has been the united states does not take oil from iraq the united states did not get special treatment to pump that oil out of Iraq. i mean just like none of the war for oil story was ever true and so that's the and one of the reasons i want to bring that up is that the people that were pro-iraq war had this stupid story that wasn't true and a lot of people who were anti-iraq war had this stupid story that's not true about how oil companies through dick cheney were somehow the ones behind this manipulating the united states in order to get them juicy oil contracts or get the u.s more oil because something something like that was just as dumb and made up But anyway, so the rationale for the war changed because after we didn't find WMDs, it was like, oh, well, Saddam Hussein's a terrible dictator and we needed to free the Iraqi people. And that rationale actually was getting added before the invasion. You have these multiple rationales. I remember, you know, this is 2003. So like I was 13, 14 at the time. And sorry, that's not true. Sorry, I was was 15, 16 at the time. Sorry. And as I was watching this unfold, I saw these like videos of how sadistic and evil Saddam Hussein and his kids were. And they were sadistic and evil, but that was like part of the propaganda of getting to the war. Like, not only do they have WMDs, but we definitely got to rid of this Saddam guy because he's evil to his own people. Right? Does that sound familiar? Right? The Russians are like, hey, this Zelensky guy, he's evil to at least the Russian people in Ukraine you know, committing genocide against them. So we've got to get rid of them. So there's some similarities there. And there was still a lot of support, even when it was pretty obvious it was stupid. Now, that one thing that's very different is that support declined fairly quickly. So there was initial support. Of it. it was a pretty quick initial war. But then support started to just go the wrong way as it got ugly and as people started dying and as we realized we... While we were indeed welcomed by many as liberators, many others were not so happy because it was a complex ethno-sectarian situation that we were not at all prepared to get into, even though you had a whole bunch of people saying it's a complex ethno-sectarian situation that you're not really prepared for. Maybe you should stop and think about it. So one thing that was different was that Bush himself and the Republicans and the war as a whole became less and less popular over time. Now, it's only been 60 days in Russia, but it's also been an absolute nightmare disaster. Way, way, way worse for 
Russia in terms of blood and treasure and such than all of Iraq plus Afghanistan put together for the United States. Way, way, way worse already. But another thing that's interesting is you might think that the Russians have access to social media um, and they should be seeing these atrocities occurring, which are, again, un believably horrifying like like barbaric to a to an extent that i thought was long put behind us as a species which is terrible and tragic but um you think these people would see these atrocities and their position would flip but i was thinking back to abu garib prison and there's that famous picture of this guy standing in like a like a black kind of triangle smock standing on a box with electroshock stuff wires wires clipped to his fingers and if he fell off the box or stepped down or something like that he'd get shocked there was a lot of you know the u.s had these kind of torture prisons for people they captured for quote enhanced interrogation and some people were okay with this in the united states and it's horrifying to look back on but weird things happen to people when a war is on and so you know it makes you think that the russian people being at least generally okay with what's going on in Ukraine, even though it's awful, makes it a little more believable. Last thing I want to cover regarding this Orwellian weirdness of of lies and deceit and how it gets in people's heads, first Putin's head, then the Russian's head, is did Putin get into Americans' heads? Because before the war, it turns out more and more Republicans and right-wingers generally, we saw this in Europe as well, were generally thinking of Russia as, well, maybe they're our friend. There's this like Tucker Carlson thing where he's like, you know, what did Putin ever do to you? But why is he your enemy? But you should be really worried about what the left is trying to do to you. So Putin's not our enemy, but our own Democrats in our own country are. Putin was doing a pretty good job of sort of driving a wedge into Europe, into the United States, dividing the country, getting his favorite guy elected through troll farms at the very least, other forms of manipulation. And so he seemed to be doing pretty well. And so Republicans and right-wingers were a little more prone to think of Putin as an okay guy and Russia as, as okay. But it turns out the war has mostly ruined that. So the percentage of Americans who think Russia is an enemy jumped from 41 to 70%. And that's probably going up because that was back in early April. That was before the excesses of Buka and et cetera were revealed. And just as as time goes on, I think Americans are going to think of Russia more and more as an enemy. But, you know, you might think, what about the other 30%? Maybe that's more the hardcore right-wingers. Actually, it's not. Turns out 72% of Democrats and 69% of Republicans describe Russia as the enemy. So it's just 30% of Democrats and 30% of Republicans, as it turns out, think Russia is not an enemy, which is interesting you know, it turns out the world's a much more complicated place than you might think, right? But it is the case that the changes in these views were more drastic among Republicans. So negative views of Russia increased by 23% among Democrats and among Republicans, it was 35%. So definitely Republicans were a little more prone to think of Russia as okay before, but now the large majority, super majorities of both parties think the Russia are the bad guys, which is interesting. It's one of the few things that Americans seem to be able to unite around these days. And as a little aside, because Trump is obviously such, like, so caught up in, in like, Putin's cult of personality and, 
and they're buddies for weird reasons and Trump likes him so much and Putin likes Trump so much and again clearly helped to get him elected and all that stuff you know what does that mean for the United States this change of public opinion well Trump's been very very nice about Putin and he made what might be his fatal mistake when he wants to run for president in 2024, uh, which he said all sorts of nice things, not just about Putin, but about the invasion itself, calling it smart and savvy. And now Putin is super unpopular, even among Republicans. The war crimes and barbarity of this invasion are just now beginning to unfold. And just the horrible pointlessness of all this loss of human life is just beginning to unfold. And Trump said out loud, like he said it on video, that Putin is smart and savvy. And so it can just get played over and over and over again, not during the general election, but during the primary, when you have this kind of like potential renewal of old school, anti-Russian, more Romney-esque Republicans trying to take down Trump. And does it mean that the old school Republicans will win? I don't know. I mean, who knows what's going to happen then? But it's going to make Trump's life a lot harder. And it's probably going to sour some people against him because you don't want to be the guy who said Hitler's pretty cool, right? And Trump has said that so many times, including specifically about this invasion, that it's going to be hard to dodge. So we'll see how that goes. Anyway, that's what I got. The world's a very, like, life is weird. Humans are weird. The Russians are definitely weird. They're living in this horrible Orwellian state, which is frightening. But uh, I think the thing, one of the things for us to take away is that the Ukrainians are incredibly courageous and powerful is that uh, such Orwellian weirdness and such, like, ability to change our own narratives can happen to us too. So we'll be talking about that more in another episode. But in the meantime... Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Slava Ukraini. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.